Hey everyone, so good to be with you guys. I've been so excited about coming. Um, just so that you know, I've only got four of my kids here, but if we can just put up that picture of uh, who my family is. It's my wife, who's sitting in the front here. And then we've got five kids. I know we're shocked by two to this date. Um, um, we basically had three kids, and I begged Julie for a fourth, and she declined me. And then I negotiated, and she said, okay, you've got two months before you've got to get the snip. If you know what that is, you don't want to know what it is. It's something awful that happens to some men. And, uh, and, uh, and basically, uh, she fell pregnant. And uh, she went to the gynae for the test, and I'd gone to so many gynae tests, I said, babe, would you just let me out of this one? Just going to chill out at home. I was trying to recover from the three kids we already got. And I remember her still coming home and shouting at the door, Tyran! And I was like, something's not right. And she walked in and she said, you know, um, we're not going to have another kid. And my heart dropped. I thought, oh, it was a, a misleading pregnancy test. And she said, we're going to have two. <laughs> and I still remember her just suddenly starting to turn sideways as my world began to spin. And if I can be honest with you, it hasn't stopped spinning since that moment. Five little kids have turned our worlds upside down, but come to think of it, they may have turned us the right way up. Uh, you know, there's a saying when you've got three kids, you're outnumbered. So think what happens when you've got five kids, Eli, Finn, Ivy, and Charlie and Sam. Two years gap between Eli and Finn, two years gap between Finn and Ivy, two years gap between Ivy and uh, Charlie, two minutes gap to Sam. I get to speak today about what's so amazing about Jesus. I asked who's going to be here, and I heard Cedars Church is going to be here, One Hope Church is going to be here. Some of you who maybe don't uh, normally go to church are going to be here, and I'm thinking, what message could get all three groups of people? Like, just bullseye in our heart and our mind. I said, I know exactly what it is. I should speak about Jesus. So I prepared a message, what's so amazing about Jesus. I worked for Common Ground for 20 years, and my last two and a half weeks, my final assignment was... What's the bottom line? All these years of preaching. I, went, I want to write a book about what's so amazing about Jesus. I did that for Common Ground every year. And I wrote a 30-chapter little book called What's So Amazing About Jesus. And I've got time to just look at three of the ama 30 amazing things about Jesus. So I just chose three, okay? So let's dive right into it. Three things that amaze me about Jesus. The first one, the first one is that um, the kinds of people... Jesus calls. The kinds of people Jesus calls. Listen to this in Mark chapter 3. Jesus called those he wanted and they came to him. He appointed 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. These are the 12. Paul, you, you got them in your memory, don't you? Just want to tell us. I'm joking. <laughs> Do you have them? <laughs> ah, okay. <laughs> Uh, almost no pastors I know have memorized these 12, but, but here they are. Simon, whom we gave the name Peter, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, which means sons of thunder. I mean, you've got a group of dudes hanging out. The top dog gets to give the nicknames to the other guys, and Jesus is like, you two, Boanerges. So whenever they're hanging out together, if you want to call both, hey, Boanerges which means sons of thunder. We'll find out why they got that name later. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and the infamous one, Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Of course, we didn't know that at the beginning of the story. This is feeding back after the fact. Why did Jesus call 12 people, not 11 people, 13 people? Well, we need to understand that these 12 are the vanguard of a movement. 
And Jesus was bringing about a new people of God, a new Israel. Jesus lived and died a Jewish person in a world where the history of Israel had been these 12 sons of Israel who became the 12 tribal leaders, became the 12 tribes, hundreds of years before tragedy had hit, and 10 of the tribes had been vanquished. They had been exiled and they lost their faith and never returned. So by the time of Jesus, the 12 tribes is down to two. And if you read the Old Testament, it's a, it's a tragic story of starting well and ending dismally. Uh, so that at the end of the Old Testament, you're like, is that it? And of course, that isn't it, because Jesus comes, he calls 12 disciples, and he's busy saying, hey, I am reorganizing, rebooting, reconstituting the people of God under my leadership. These 12 are symbolic of the people of God. Why does Jesus call them? We're told in the verse I just read, firstly, that they might be with him. Jesus needed partners in his work. He needed friends in his life. Anyone else in the room need partners in your work and friends in your life? In one place, he describes these disciples as his new family, his mothers, his brothers, his sisters. Another reason he calls them is that he might send them out. See, Jesus had a vision to reach the world, bottom right, on that uh, banner. Jesus had a vision to reach the world, but he knew his time was short, so he would train them up to be his hands, his feet, his mouth when he returned to the Father. Jesus was called a rabbi uh, in, in the Bible because a, a Jewish rabbi at the age of 30 would take on a young party of disciples devoted to learning everything they could from him. One key difference between Jesus and the other rabbis, other, other rabbis would be approached by wannabe disciples where Jesus walked around choosing his. And so magnetic was that initial conversation that within a, a few phrases it seems they were willing to leave their jobs and families to join him. These 12 included two sets of brothers, James and John and Peter and Andrew, who worked as partners in fishing boats. And uh, in a fantastic irony, the day of their greatest success in business, they pull in the biggest catch with um, some assistance from Jesus. On that day when they're at their peak, he calls them out of business into full-time being on his team as he launches his movement. My question is, what kinds of people does he choose as we look at this list of 12? Because as we think about it, we realize that Jesus is still alive today, calls people, and gives us a clue about whether we might be called. So what kinds of people does Jesus choose? Firstly, Jesus chooses a diversity of people. I mean, just think about two. Uh, you've got Simon the Zealot. The word zealot uh, it speaks about a group of people who were uh, basically had the idea that we needed to use military might to drive Rome out of Israel. Okay, they hated the Romans. Compare that with Matthew the tax collector. Matthew was somebody who realized, hang on, if I make friends with the Romans, maybe I can get a deal going. So I'll collect money from everybody and I'll take some commission. So one guy is friends with the Romans, the other guy hates the Romans, and you put those guys together in a group for three years. You can imagine there's some conflict. In fact, Jesus teaches his disciples that, that as they, as they um, love him, they need to learn to love each other, which turns out to be quite difficult. Peter at one point comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, one of these guys is driving me nuts. I've forgiven him seven times. I'm done. And Jesus says, you're not done. You need to do 70 times 7. Like actually, that, that, that um, well of forgiveness can go deeper yet. And one of the things you learn is that you can choose your friends, but you can't choose your family. 
Yeah? And if the church is a family according to Jesus, that means that it's inevitable that there'll be some people in your church or some people in your small group or life group uh, that you may not have chosen to be in your life group. So it's like you're picking and choosing your social group here. And, uh, and I'm always amazed that in any group of people, there's at least one or two people that have just got a way of just irking you and getting under your skin. And, and, and what I've noticed is when, when you can't think of that person in your group, usually it's a sign <laughs> that you're that person. <laughs> but we stuck together. Jesus, we notice secondly, chooses unpromising people. We often, often we talk up Jesus, we, we speak about him as this talent scout, going, that guy's got tremendous talent. Oh, wow, talent, talent. Jesus is not a talent scout. He, he couldn't have chosen worse in my view. I mean, uh, one of the signs that the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, is not propaganda, as some skeptics would suggest, but actually really good historically reliable documents, is that if it was propaganda and it was written by the apostles and their delegates, they would have inevitably talked up their initial leadership of the Christian movement. And yet when you read the Gospels, I mean, you're shocked by what you see. They're portrayed as a bunch of disappointing dimwits. Hardly a decent PR exercise for the church. I mean, think about James and John. who uh, they, They're looking for a place to stay. They're going to town, no place for uh, in, in the end, Jesus walks out and James and John say, Jesus, let's call down fire on that town. Like, these guys are arsonists. And that's actually where they get their nickname, Bonergies, like sons of thunder. And, and then one time their mother is hanging out with, the crew, with Jesus and the crew and James and John say, hey, you get on really well with Jesus. Go talk to him and say, hey, why don't you make my boys the top dogs next to you in the kingdom? I mean, these are the leaders. Or how about Peter? Peter puts his foot in his mouth again and again. He discourages Jesus from his life's work. He interrupts Jesus at crucial moments with nonsense speech. He swears he will never let Jesus down. In fact, read the Gospels. Again and again we find Jesus deeply frustrated, rebuking his disciples for their dullness and their lack of faith. In fact, on his final night that he is, uh, he is about to be arrested, he is really desperate. And he takes his three closest friends and he says, just stay awake for me tonight. They've never seen Jesus so vulnerable. I mean, he's sweating blood, so anxious and so um, anxiety, I mean, um, agony-filled is he. And they fall asleep. And then before the night is done, Peter panickingly chops off a servant's ear, flees for his life, denies his association with Jesus to a servant girl, and finally locks himself indoors. I mean, this is the leader of the church. I think what we learn here, at the very least, is that Jesus does not call the worthy. He doesn't call the worthy, which uh, is embarrassing for these guys, but really good for people like me, who've done some stupid things in our lives. You see, he doesn't call the worthy, but once he calls you, he starts to work worthiness into you. And mind you, if the disciples have anything to go by, it can take some time. And not only does he not call the worthy, he does not call the equipped. Rather, he equips those that he has already called. I mean, one of Jesus' happiest moments in the, in the Gospels is, is when he sends out his disciples on their first mission without his physical presence. 
They come back, they are so pumped up, they say, demons were cast out, lives were changed, it was amazing what we could do in your name. And Jesus is ecstatic, more ecstatic than we find him anywhere in the Gospels. It seems that Jesus draws greater thrill, greatest thrill from seeing a ragtag of losers becoming a portal of heaven's power. Hey, notice also that Jesus chooses people who stay open to his grace. I don't know if you know the Jesus story, but the night that Jesus is arrested, uh, there is Judas who betrays him, and there is Peter who denies him. They, are, they both fail Jesus. There's just a slight difference of de- degrees. And both of them wake up in the morning and feel awful. The difference between Judas and Peter is Judas is remorseful but not repentant. And in a sense, he follows through with the consequences of his own actions, and he gives himself what he thinks he deserves. He takes his own life. Peter, on the other hand, is humiliated, but somehow in the story still stays open to Jesus' grace. And that's what makes all the the difference. None of us deserve entrance into God's kingdom, into Jesus' family. We get taken in by grace, and the way to stay in the kingdom is to keep open to this grace. And then finally, Jesus chooses people who are held by conviction. They're held by conviction. See, despite the disciples' unpromising start, finally they get the job done. I mean, John the son of thunder becomes the apostle of love. An impetuous Peter who, uh, who was willing to deny Jesus to a nobody is, is finally uh, willing to tell everybody about Jesus. And they suffer for it. And if you know the story, but um, of the 11 remaining apostles, only one of them dies a natural death and, and the rest of them are martyred. Church tradition, for example, says that the brothers Andrew and Peter were crucified. Uh, Andrew was crucified in Greece and Peter was crucified in Rome and he said, I can't be crucified the same as my master. Crucify me upside down. And the question is, what made these guys willing to be arrested scourged, imprisoned, and ultimately killed, where all they needed to do, according to church history, was to deny their claims. It it, it was simple. From the beginning, they had a simple message. We saw Jesus risen from the dead. And they were held by this simple conviction. There is no explanation at an historical level, level for the explosion of the early church other than their firm belief that they had seen Jesus rise again from the dead. And to this day, uh, what keeps you around is that you're held by conviction. By conviction. Well, those are the kinds of people Jesus chooses. So that's the first thing that amazes me about Jesus. The kinds of people he chooses. I'll tell you the second thing that amazes me about Jesus. And I, I don't know what better to call it than this. I'm amazed by the moment of, of his liftoff. The moment of his liftoff. As South Africans, we still have Ascension Day. Some schools even let their kids stay at home that day, like my kids' school. Ascension Day. And Ascension Day reminds us that there are some key events in the life of Jesus. The most famous ones are his baptism and his temptation and his transfiguration and then the, the trials, and then his death and his resurrection, and then Pentecost when the Spirit is poured out, and then, and then sorry, ascension, then Pentecost. 
My experience is that the, uns, the undersung part of the story is Ascension Day. It's the, it's the, the memory of the day that, that he rose uh, into heaven. Listen to what Jesus says in John 16. Unless I go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So going away is Jesus' term for liftoff. Or Acts chapter 1. You will receive power, says Jesus, when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. So 40 days after his resurrection, the Son of God returns to heaven. Acts 1 tells the story of Jesus literally disappearing from their sight, so that the disciples are left staring into the sky, dumbfounded, like, like kids that have lost their parents. And two angels have to come along and say, what you're looking at, and move on. But actually, uh, they had very good reason to be stunned by what they were experiencing. Because they were experiencing a, a seismic shift in the journey of Jesus. Jesus has a journey, we're told, as the Son of God who first comes down to earth in the incarnation, lives amongst us, dies, rises again from the dead, and then the Jesus of history on this particular day becomes the Christ of faith. See, Jesus uh, visible is becoming Jesus invisible. It's a powerful moment happening right there. Christians, uh, if we read the songs we sing about, very often speak about Jesus in the past, Jesus in the future. In the past, he died, he rose again. In the future, he's coming back again. But maybe don't emphasize enough what Jesus is doing today. Which, by the way, has huge relevance if you're living in today. My question is, what's Jesus doing, not just at 3 o'clock, but right now? And I'm glad to say that the Bible tells us what he's doing. At least four things. Number one, he is ruling the universe. Then Peter stands up and preaches at the first opening message of the launch of the Jerusalem church. He says, The Lord said to my Lord, he's quoting an Old Testament psalm, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The New Testament quotes many verses from the Old Testament. This verse is quoted more than any other. If you want to think about Jesus, think about Jesus sitting at the right hand of God and resting his feet on his enemies. He's sitting on a throne. And then Peter says, therefore let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified both Messiah and Lord. The word Lord means he's in charge. The reason Christians got martyred in those opening centuries is everybody was taught to say the words, uh, see, uh, sorry, Kaiser Curios, Kaiser Curios, Caesar is Lord. And then along came Christians who said, no, 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 Yesu, Curios. There was one super celebrity at the top of the world empire, Caesar. He could just make decisions and the whole empire would follow through on it. And then comes along Christians and says, actually there's a guy with higher authority that we submit to and that ultimately is in charge. It's good to know. I mean, there is a certain randomness about, the, about COVID-19. It's like, will you get it? Won't you get it? It's the roll of the dice. And actually, we just remember, uh, when you understand who Jesus is, you understand that randomness is taken out. You're under his reign. 
They're under his, his reign. That's why you can have faith instead of fear. If you think randomness, of course fear. If you think reign, you think faith. The second thing Jesus is doing is he is building his church. Jesus promised his disciples, I will build my church. Now remember, Jesus just got a ragtag of 12 people when he makes that promise. My question is, 2,000 years later, has he kept it? Has Jesus built his church? I mean, here we've got statistical evidence that there are 4 million church communities like this one gathering, most of them today. Jesus has been very busy building his church. He's been good on his promise. And it's always fantastic to know because usually there are some people that would start a church and some people will make leadership decisions about doing this and that. And at times you might think that actually what we're living in as churches is because of the initiative of people until we remember actually back behind these people is Kairos, Yesu, who's saying, I want to start a church here and another one here, another outpost of heaven. Second thing Jesus is doing today, right now, is he's praying for his own. Hebrews 7, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to pray for, it, for them. Right now, Jesus is praying for you. He's praying for you. It's so wonderful to hear that people are praying for me. Julie, her brother, her sister, uh, every single morning, her parents for now, 20 years have prayed for them every single morning and our grandkids so it's great to know you're being prayed for but what about the morning they forget then what it's covered <laughs> Jesus is praying and the reason they're praying is because Jesus is, is basically tapping people on the shoulder saying hey join me in my prayer meeting we're praying for them It's amazing that Jesus is attentive to the details and the challenges of your life. A beautiful story, actually an agonizing story, is the story of the first martyr, Stephen, who's being stoned to death, and just before the final stone hits his cranium, he cries out, Heaven is opening before me, the Son of Man is standing to receive me. Has a vision. Usually Jesus is sitting down, but he's so moved by the, the, the courage and the faith of his servant. He's got off his throne. He's reaching down to draw him into another realm. Jesus is praying for you. He is attentive to you. He hasn't missed a detail of your life. I know we live in Stellenbosch, and uh, we, the, this is where Heinz Winkler it, it lives. And I heard a story of him going to a conference. Did I get his name right there? He, he, going to a conference recently where a well-known prophetic gift from America is there. And Heinz Winkler is leading a song. He goes off the stage and the, this prophet gets up and he says, hey you, sorry, the guy who sang, come back up here, I've got a word for you. And he says, he says you've got four children, right? Two of them are boys, right? Heinz is already crying. He says, 2002, something big happened, right? Bang! That's the year he wins idols. And he says, and after that, and he describes with detail, Heinz is weeping, weeping, because he's gone through some hard years. And, the, and, and, and basically, what, where he felt abandoned, God was so attentive. And, and there are times when you feel so alone, so forgotten, so overlooked, so wrongly treated. What's the meaning of your pain and your suffering? And it's just so good to know that Jesus is attentive to that. And he's going to weave it together into a story. And the other thing Jesus is doing is, is he is sending his spirit. 
today. He's sending his spirit. Jesus promised that as he goes up, he would send his replacement, uh, the Holy Spirit. He says, it's actually better for you that I go. I've often wondered about that. Surely the, the best ever deal as following Jesus was when you had physical Jesus with you. I mean, those 12 disciples got it. Jesus says, no, 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 it's better that I go. I mean, is that even true? Well, I thought about it. I think it is for two reasons. See, firstly, the Spirit of God internalizes the presence of Jesus. The disciples are sitting here. Jesus is sitting there. The closest they get to Jesus is to be next to him. One guy gets really close, puts his head on Jesus' chest. That's as close as you're going to get to him. But once Jesus goes up, the Spirit comes down. Now you've got Jesus inside of you. Much closer. The other thing, the Spirit of God not only internalizes the presence of Jesus, the Spirit of God um, universalizes the presence of Jesus. I mean, the Gospels, you've got Jesus in Bethsaida. If you want to be with Jesus, you've got to be in Bethsaida. Somebody who's in Jericho that night, you're not with Jesus. Then Jesus moves on to Jericho. Okay, now you can be with Jesus. But once Jesus lifts his feet off the ground and pours down his spirit, it doesn't matter your latitude or your longitude. His presence is multiplied. Everywhere you go, we can call on the name of Jesus. That's why four million churches around the world can call on the name of Jesus and experience the same sense of the presence of God that we're experiencing this morning. That's the second thing that amazes me about Jesus. Not just the kinds of people he calls and the, the moment of, of his liftoff and what that means for us. But thirdly, and my final point, it'll have some sub-points, <laughs> is, that, is that he gives us his name, Christians. He gives us his name, Christians. If I can be honest, when I first became a Christian, I was stoked to call myself a Christian. I grew up in a part of the world where, really, in Seapoint, Cape Town, I would say that 15% of people would have described themselves as Christians. So it was very rare. But then I realized that there are parts of South Africa where most people call themselves Christians. There's something called nominal Christianity, where, you know, you've got to fill in the form. Are you Buddhist? Are you Muslim? No, no. Okay, what are you? Are you atheist? Are you Christian? Well, I'm not an atheist. A Christian. Okay, so you're a Christian. And, uh, and I realized, no, no, what, I'm not that anymore. I'm not just the person who signs the form. I'm the, I've got a connection to Jesus. And I like the name. It came to me after a few years. People were using it. I'm a Christ follower. And I say for about 15 years, I've, I've spoken about being a Christ follower. I would say in the last six months, suddenly the name Christian is coming alive for me. What's happened is nominal Christianity is on the decline. I don't know if you know that. There are less and less nominal Christians. It's, it's going down slowly. Some areas faster than others. So it's like the name is just fresh again. And what I like about it is in the Bible. You, you know, Jesus calls his disciples many things. He calls them my sheep, my friends, my brothers and my sisters, uh, Believers, they sometimes describe that. 256 times Christians are called disciples. That is the, mo the most common name. And then people around the faith community are checking in and often give names that then would take. So other people give you a name and then you use that name. So they would be called the, the, the sect of the Nazarene or the way. But in one particular place in Acts chapter 11, the disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. And people are looking in and saying, what is this community about? And keep on hearing mention of Christ, Christ, Christ. And they go, Christians. Which basically means a little Jesuses. And actually, it's a little insult. Are you little Jesuses? And they go, I know you meant it as insult, but we kind of like it. We'll take it. And that name takes. And I'd like to just think about 
what a Christian is. You know, the, the, not nominal Christianity, uh, the kind of Christian that Jesus speaks about, the Bible speaks about. Firstly, a Christian is somebody who is amazed, not necessarily amazing. When I first became a Christian, I was just amazed. And after being a Christian a while, I started thinking, hey, I could actually be a pretty good Christian. And, and I want to actually be an amazing Christian. And that was a mistake, because then there's some failure, some, you know, aiming at something, not getting it, and then I, okay, so I'm not so amazing. Flip. Then I came back to where I started. I thought I should have never left there. Back to amazed. You see, you see I don't know if you know this, uh, Everybody is trying to grab a bit of Jesus. You've got Jesus according to the scriptures, and then you've got made-up, fabricated Jesus. The most popular fabricated Jesus of our time is the New Age Jesus. You go to any exclusive bookshops, and you look at the, the, the books in the esoteric section, and, and they'll keep on claiming Jesus. The New Age Jesus is a man who lives 2,000 years ago who realizes his divinity, who one day looks in the mirror and goes, You're amazing. And then, being a good man, comes and teaches everyone else, you also need to realize your divinity. You're also amazing. So a New Age movement is about realizing how amazing you are. I mean, you're divine. Okay? That is a fabricated Jesus, not the one you find in the Scriptures. The one you find in the Scriptures doesn't say, hey, I'm amazing, you're amazing. The one you find in the Scriptures says, you're a sinner, I'm a Savior. The Jesus in the Scriptures is unique. He's unparalleled as a savior. He does for us what we could not do for ourselves. You know, the night Jesus is betrayed, he's in the garden and he's praying. And uh, just hours before, he had handed out the first communion, these glasses of wine, red like his blood. And he says, drink this. This is the cup of my salvation. And Christians would drink the cup saying, the cup, the, the, the salvation of Jesus is sweet. This is the cup of the cup of the, of of salvation. But a few hours later, Jesus is in the garden and he's saying, take this cup from me, he's praying. It's a different cup. The first cup is the cup of salvation. The second cup is the cup that only he can drink. It's the cup of the Savior. He's basically saying, God, is there any other way that we can save the world that doesn't involve me being crucified tomorrow? And heaven is silent. The answer is no. And Jesus again resolves himself to drink the cup of the Savior. The reason we can drink the cup of salvation is because Jesus drank the cup of the Savior. One cup is sweet, the other is unutterably bitter. And Jesus drank it. My point is, is that there's only one amazing person in the Scriptures. Jesus, who does for us what we could never do for ourselves. You're swimming between Robben Island and, and Milneton, and, and uh, a kilometer out of the beach, you start to sink. And then this granny on the beach suddenly swims out to you a kilometer, puts her arm around you, and with one arm, pulls you in onto the beach. And the, the camera crew get all around, and you like get your, you know, resuscitated. You don't stand up and go, I'm amazing! No, the camera crew are not interested in you. They're interested in the granny. See, all you can be is amazed. There's one amazing person. Jesus is the Savior. He is the amazing one. So by all means, do great things and do it with great love. I mean, but never forget that it comes from a grace-stunned heart, an amazed heart. The second thing we learn about uh, what it means to be a Christian is a Christian has a live connection to the living Jesus. Uh, after that, that, that 
first communion, before Jesus goes to the garden, he's got his disciples in a vineyard. Anyone know about vineyards? It's a popular kind of fruit. Um, turns into wine. Anyone? I live in, we live in Constantia, so we enjoy vineyards all the time ourselves, and, uh, and the fruit of the vine, for that matter. And, uh, and anyway, Jesus pulls off a branch, and he says, you, each of you is a branch, grafted into a vine. He says, remain in me. And this is so important because, because a Christian is not just somebody who lives on the teaching of Jesus, although that's important, or even somebody who lives on the salvation of Jesus, also important. A Christian is somebody who lives on Jesus. You rely on him. You've got this daily connection to him. You're plugged into him. You remain in him. The life-giving sap flows from Jesus into your life. I'm so grateful to God for the Bible the Bible is an amazing book. I mean, I would not know about Jesus if, if we didn't have that new, those, the New Testament. So grateful. But we need to remember God has given us more than the New Testament. We also have Jesus. See, if he only gave us the New Testament, then all Christians would ever do is read the Bible. But of course, we don't. Christians, Christians also sing. They pray. They get alone with God. They listen to him. And, and the reason is we've got the Bible that describes Jesus. Uh, very authoritatively and, and accurately, but doesn't necessarily contain Jesus. Jesus has given us, we've got the Bible, and we've got the living Jesus accessible to us through the Spirit. Imagine you, you get to Rio, you sit in your hotel room, and then you pull out your, tour gui your, 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 your um, guidebook, and you just sit in the hotel, and you're like, awesome, look at these pictures, you've got all these descriptions. No, 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 you've actually, the doorbell rings, and the tour guide comes. He says, you've got your guidebook, great. So that's going to describe everything. But the tour guide then takes you to the places. We get given the scriptures, the guidebook, and we've got the tour guide, the Holy Spirit. Both and. We study the Bible and we sing. We pray. We actually experience Jesus. I'm not dissing the Bible. I hope you don't get me wrong. I'm saying, I'm saying we've, got the G, we've got the Bible plus. Sometimes Christians get, think they've only got the Bible. Okay. Let me move on. Story of Alexander the Great, that ter terrible conqueror. And, and a 17-year-old in a heat of battle runs for his life. That is punishable by death. The generals bring this 17-year-old boy to Alexander for his punishment. And Alexander says to the boy, what is your name? The boy goes, my name is Alexander. Pardon? Alexander. <laughs> my mom named me after you. Alexander turns away and he looks back at the boy. He goes, change your name or change your behavior and lets him off the hook. The reality, if you carry the name of Christ, there's no way around having a holy responsibility. A holy responsibility. We, we've got to maybe live a certain kind of life. So, so being a Christian is somebody who gives their all to Jesus. See, first Jesus gives himself to us in salvation, but then we learn slowly but surely to give ourselves back to him in discipleship. Jesus, again and again, you read the Gospels. He, he speaks to the crowds, but he takes every opportunity to get with the individual and to press them to greater trust and to greater entrustment and to more wholehearted challenge. I mean, think of the metaphors Jesus has used. All of them imply wholehearted commitment, the yoke of burden. An ox yoked to another ox. Jesus says, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. 
but still you're locked into Jesus. Or think about the towel of servanthood. I've washed your feet, now wash each other's feet. Or think about, think about the cross. Jesus says, take up your cross. He's calling us to lose our life to save it. The first will be last. The meek will inherit the earth. Rejoice in persecution. It's better to give than to receive. Turn the other cheek. Forsake the love of money and the pleasures the world has to offer. You cannot serve two masters. See, Jesus presses us to wholehearted commitment. A Christian is somebody who is learning to give themselves to Jesus. And it's amazing if you are a Christian how you can ungive yourself to him over time. So, you know, one year you, you fully, you're all in, and then you get distracted. And then if you're actually honest, you've only given like 15% of your life to Jesus and you've taken back the other 85 and then you come back to Jesus and the scriptures and you go, oops, and you go all in again. You renew the giving of your life to him. I'll tell you what else a Christian is. A Christian is somebody who does not pick and choose. We live in a day of customizable spirituality. You know, we, we get to build our spirituality. I like the term spirituality, but implied in it is this pick and choose. You, you, you build your own. So, so you take some things from Jesus, you take some things from Buddha, you take some things from pop psychology, and you navigate a life for yourself. Uh, and then, then, then when you look back at Jesus, you go, hang on, we're dealing with the master of the universe. I mean, he is the definitive revelation of God. And if that is true... We don't co-opt him for our ends. Rather, we take him as he is. We lay everything down. We reorganize our thinking, our values, our lifestyles around him. I'll tell you what else a Christian is. A Christian is somebody who lets Jesus rub off on them. Let's Jesus rub off on them. And it takes a long time for the disciples to get Jesus rubbing off on them. But over a matter of years, it, it starts to happen. In Acts chapter 4, the very people that had crucified Jesus says when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. These guys said, we got rid of Jesus, but oh my goodness, he's rubbed off on his followers. Down! If you've been following Jesus for many years, you can expect that he starts to rub off on your life. There's something about Jesus, the kind of person he is, that starts to reflect in the kind of person you are. I know this could be a whole sermon series, but I mean, but think about Jesus. Jesus is free of toxic masculinity. I mean, he is strong. He's a proper man, and yet he's so tender with women. I read this uh, Beth Moore quote on Facebook. A few things about Christ-like manhood. One, it is fierce enough to fight for a woman. Two, bold enough to want a woman in Bible class. Three, safe enough to be alone with a woman. Four, muscular enough to scatter a crowd of men ready to stone a sinful woman. And six, brazen enough to send a woman with good news. It's a brilliant list because he's basically describing how Jesus treated women. So you hang with, you're a man, you hang with Jesus, he reformats your masculinity. What? toxicities in your life you get free of and you become a person who gives as much dignity as you can to, to women in the world. Or Jesus gives his life, lays it down, embracing danger for others. You know, the early church, we're told by historians like Rodney Stark, the reason Christianity exploded, going from just one sect amongst 
thousands to being the one that would overtake the Roman Empire is that Christians did not only outthink their pagan friends, they outloved their pagan friends. And if you know the story, in the second century, huge plagues hit the Roman Empire. A person would start coughing, they would start showing symptoms, and, and then the family would literally toss them out into the street. The person got sick, stay away! In a, in a state of terror, everybody for themselves. And then that person would lie in the streets and they would die. Christians stood out amongst the others because Christians would walk through the streets and go, hey, come to my house. See, they didn't live in terror because they understood something called eternal life. If I die... But what happened is that Christians cared for each other to start. And what happened is a lot of people who you think would die because they got sick would actually get healed if they were looked after. So many Christians would get this, this particular virus, but, but many more would live. So that Christians in some ways we actually had a greater share of the population by the end of this, and that helped other people, and the reputation was out. Their enemies would say, see how they love each other. Christians should be known as those who lay down their lives in loving service to their brothers and their sisters in Christ and in the world. Okay, I've got two more to go for you. Christians receive his power from on high. Uh, I don't know if you know this, but there's, there's two books in the New Testament, Luke and Acts, both written by Luke, and they're part one, part two. And, and the book of Luke is this amazing story of Jesus, who in a moment is filled with power from on high, the Holy Spirit, who does tremendous miracles, who, who teaches with power, and there's huge conflict. He dies, rises again from the dead goes up to heaven, pours out his spirit, which is where Acts starts. And you see the same thing happening. Now you've got the church filled with the Holy Spirit, being sent out in power, huge conflict, healings happening. And actually it runs parallel. And the biggest clue that Luke is intentionally running them parallel is at the end of the Gospel of Luke, Jesus says these words, Wait in Jerusalem until you are clothed with power from on high. And one of the awesome things about studying the Bible back and forth, back and forth, is you start to see the connection. See, that line, clothed with power from on high, is meant to take you back to an Old Testament story where there is a famous moment of succession from one prophet to another. You've got Elijah who does amazing miracles and brings prophetic words. And then he has, a, he has an assistant, Elisha, who says, I want what you got. And, and, and his friends actually say, just stay close to Elijah. And they stay close to Elijah. And one day Elijah gets lifted off the earth. And as he goes up, he drops something down. His, his cloak of power. And Elisha, he's under it. He catches it. He puts it on. And he's got the power. And in fact, he does twice as many miracles, twice as many prophecies, twice as many healings as Elisha. And when Jesus says the words, wait in Jerusalem until you are clothed with power from on high, he says, I want you to think of this moment like the moment when Elijah went up and his power came down and the power of God is about to be multiplied because it won't just be one person and it will be many. And the point I'm trying to make here is that we receive power from on high, the Spirit of God doesn't only internalize the presence of Jesus and universalize the presence of Jesus. The Spirit of God multiplies the ministry of Jesus. And if you are wondering what the most exciting thing that could possibly happen to your life, I suggest there could be nothing that touches the possibility of being a person who catches the cloak of power and continues the ministry of Jesus. And then my final point, really quickly, is that, that the Christian has a growing awe for Jesus. 
In C.S. Lewis's book, Prince Caspian, Lucy enters Narnia again. She hasn't seen Aslan, the, the lion figure who represents Christ for a long time. And, and then they are wonderfully reunited, and Lucy says, Aslan, you've grown so much bigger. And Aslan replies, Lucy, that's because you are older. You see, Lucy, every year that you grow, you will find me bigger. I've been a Christian 20 years. Jesus is getting bigger by the year. Every year I grow, he grows for all eternity. Year after year, he's going to get bigger, bigger, because I'm going to see more. I'm going to see more, and that's my prayer for you. Can I ask you to stand up? Let's pray. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for your presence with us. I mean, this is a, this is a remarkable experience. I mean, uh, there might be a, a bunch of people that are listening to you talk about Nelson Mandela or about a Buddha or about some famous person. And as interesting as that message is, it's just them and the thoughts about this person. But here we are talking about the person who is actually present in our midst. Jesus, we love you. Thank you for calling people like us. Thank you for giving us your spirit. Thank you for giving us the name Christian. While we're praying, I'm thinking of those of you maybe new to church or back in church after a long time. Maybe you arrived, you're not so sure what you believe about Jesus. Hey, maybe you didn't even believe in Jesus. But as you've been here today, you've realized what lots of people at some point realize, that there is more to reality than you first thought. And it's dawned on you that Jesus is real. And maybe even as you're here right now, or even here this morning, you've sensed the reality of Jesus. It's like he's knocking on the door of your heart. In fact, he says, I stand at the door and I knock. And if anyone will open that door, I'll come in and we'll have a meal together. And you know who you are if Jesus is knocking on your heart right now. I experienced it when I was 16. Undeniable sense of Jesus personally introducing himself to me. And if that's you today, Jesus is, is saying, trust in me. I'm calling you into my kingdom. doesn't matter what you've done. I've drank the cup of the Savior so you can drink the sweet cup of salvation. If that's you, I would, I would be so honored if I could pray with you. I'd just love to know who you are. Can I ask everyone to close their eyes? I'm not going to draw public attention to you. But I'm going to count to three soon. And when I say three, would you put up your hand as your way of saying, Tyrion, I'm coming home to Jesus today. I'm trusting in him. Maybe you trusted him a long time ago and you've drifted away, but you're coming back today. Would you put up your hand too? Okay. And then I want to pray for you. So I'm going to count three. One, God loves you. Two, have the courage to respond. Three, just lift up your hand high. If that's you. Wonderful. Just lift it up high. Praise God. Wonderful. Anyone else? I just guide you in a simple prayer where you are. Hey, can I just ask everyone to pray along uh, in support? Here we go. I give it to you line at a time. God, thank you that you love me. Jesus, thanks for dying on the cross for our sins. Please forgive mine. Thank you for rising again from the dead. You're alive. Come and live in me by your spirit take me into your family take me into your kingdom 
teach me to trust you and follow you. Amen. Wonderful. Welcome. People that pray that prayer for the first time, should we just...